Greetings and welcome to another episode of Poetry Cast. I'm your host, Jonathan Stone. It's been quite some time since our last episode, but thank you for being patient with my inconsistent publishing schedule. In this episode, we're going to discuss what makes an accurate translation of a poem by exploring a few different concepts and styles of translation as they pertain to Pablo Neruda's sonnets. And we'll also talk about the way translations can sometimes write themselves. Several ways to determine an accurate translation may include either remaining faithful to the sound of the original work or to the meaning of the original. I've noticed that some translators, such as John Felsteiner, who translated Neruda's Autores de Machu Picchu, vacillate between the two determiners of literal and faithful accuracy, that is, sound and meaning. On the other hand, I would say that a good example of someone who prefers to stick to a faithful representation through meaning is Stephen Tapscott, who translated Neruda's Cien Sonetos de Amor and produced a gratifying translation as well. Let me make clear that my intention here is not to argue that one method is better better than another, or that it's preferable to lean toward a more accurate rendering of meaning rather than sound. An accuracy of both meaning and sound would be ideal, but at the same time it's almost impossible. Let's face it, we're taking the words, diction, and syntax of one person, and then substituting the words, diction, and syntax from another person, not to mention another language, and expecting to come up with a very similar meaning. Such expectations are impractical, especially when it comes to poetry. This is not to say that the endeavor is foolish. In fact, it may indeed be commendable. But the translator is always faced with the fact that what he is writing will always be different than the original. The translator can hope that what that translation communicates is at least in some way faithful. And this is especially true with poetry, once again. You can translate prose and uh, legal documents and perhaps technical manuals more successfully than poetry, but poetry has a deeper, more, what shall we call it, transliteral meaning, which we'll get to a little later. As John Felsteiner reflects on his experience with Autores de Machu Picchu, he says that translating a poem often feels essentially like the primary act of writing, of carrying some pre-verbal sensation or emotion or thought over into words. Anyone who has slowly shaped an original sentence knows what it feels like to edge toward a word or phrase and then toward a more apt one, one that suddenly touches off a new thought. The same experience holds for poets generating a line of verse who find that the right rhyme or image when it comes can trigger an unlooked-for and now indispensable meaning. I too have found this to be the case in my translations, as well as in my original work. Placing the words on the page seems to mimic the functioning of the brain, whereas one idea leads to another through some type of association, whether it's an association arrived at through personal experience, through sound, or through meaning, the poem at times seems to write itself. Such observations were also made by the Romantic writers of the 19th century, such as William Wordsworth, whose oft-quoted phrase, poetry is a spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, will sound familiar, but his observation is also appropriate, once again, in light of our current discussion. And we were to replace Wordsworth's phrase, powerful feelings, with Felsteiner's pre-verbal sensation, then we arrive at a very similar conclusion between the two writers. How about now we finally look at some examples of these theories as I apply them in my translating experience. First I'll read Neruda's Neruda's sonnet 79 from his Cien Sonetos de Amor, and then I'll comment on how certain words began a chain of associations that led to the final draft of the translated poem. Sonnet 79. 
After dusk, my love, your heart is moored to mine, and in sleep, our ships engage the darkness. Like a talking drum in the forest, we struggle against the thick stratum of damp foliage. Nocturnal passage, glowing coal of glowing dream, it severs the vine of ripened grapes with the force of an absurd train whose cargo consists of shadows and cold stones. Therefore, love, moor me to the celestial progression, to the tenacity that in your breast beats the wings of a submerged swan, because the stellar questions we ask the zodiac are answered in our dream with a single key, a key to unlock the door closed by sleep. In Neruda's poem, he begins with de noche, which I could easily have translated to from night or from evening, or as Stephen Tapscott translated it, by night. However, I decided on after dusk. I chose this phrase because of the way it sounds. The word night sounds too sharp to me, so to speak, with its high vowel sound and its final harsh consonant. Too sharp, at least, for introducing a love sonnet. As you can see, such decisions are mostly a matter of taste, but such seemingly minor decisions can take the poem in a direction all its own. I also like the way that the assonant sound in dusk was repeated in love, and so it produced quite a surprisingly pleasant opening line for my translation. And lastly, the phrase after dusk is a synonym for night, so it works on the level of denotative meaning of Neruda's original de noche as well. Next, I decided to use the word engage from Neruda's original de roten in line two, which literally translates to defeat. Although such a choice may seem controversial to some, once again I preferred the sound of engage to that of defeat. Engage also seems more active to me than defeat. Defeat sounds as if the action being described is either in the past or the future, but engage seems to exist strongly in the present, so it really grounds the line for me. And when I used the word engage, it led me to translate the fourth line in the manner that I did with foliage, using consonants, or the repetition of a consonant sound, in this case, the age of the two words. Whereas a more literal translation of Neruda's fourth line would lead one to write something like the thick wall of wet leaves that Tapscott so steadfastly wrote, I came up with the thick stratum of damp foliage, which was not only inspired by engage, but also by a line I used in an earlier sonnet. Therefore, you can see how one simple word really can lead to a whole new poem. In fact, it can lead to a whole new collection of poems. Well, enough of the explanations, commentary. Let's get back to the poetry. This next sonnet is number 82, found in the same section of Neruda's book as the previous sonnet. He groups these sonnets together, and therefore we assume that they somehow relate more closely with one another than with the sonnets in the previous three sections of his book. He directly mentions night in this poem, as he does in the previous one. In many poems of this section, aptly titled Noche, he discusses aspects of the night, including sleep, dreams, and the closing and hushing of the house. In fact, as you may have noticed, Neruda's sonnets have a domestic echo to them, so to speak. He often speaks of the house, and in particular the kitchen, the bedroom, and the garden throughout his work. So let's listen to Sonnet 82, and then we'll talk about it some more. My love, I ask you to close this nocturnal door. I ask you, love, for a trip through this dark enclosure. Close your dreams, present your heaven to my eyes, merge into my body, converge with my blood. Goodbye, goodbye, cruel clarity that fell each day into this sack. Goodbye to each ray of the clock, the orange, to health, O shade, O sporadic companion. Within this ship, 
this ocean, this death, this birth, this time more intimate, slept, resurrected. We are now the marriage of the night to the pulse. I don't know who lives, who dies, who rests, who wakes, but it is your heart that pumps the gifts of dawn within my chest. I'm really satisfied with the way that the second couplet of the first stanza turned out in my translation. Close your dreams, present your heaven to my eyes, merge into my body, converge with my blood. I took a bit of liberty with the second line, which more literally translates to expand in my blood as you would in a large river. I felt that it would be unnecessary to, to compare the blood to a river, so instead I merely dropped the simile and wrote as if the blood is a river. Many of you who are well-seasoned poets will agree that usually metaphor is stronger than simile, so if you would like to compare something in a poem, you're usually better off, or at least safer, using a metaphor. I say this because pulling off a successful simile is much more difficult than pulling off a successful metaphor. Of course, it can be done, and great writers do it well, but those of us who are still honing their skills would be best off climbing with a rope, rather than scaling the precipice untethered. One way where simile rather than metaphor would work better in a poem is if the simile really sings. In other words, if the simile sounds really good, then I would use it. Or there are times where metaphor would just not work, and this would be a judgment call for the poet to make, which again comes with experience. Here's an example of a simile from Alan Tate's Ode to the Confederate Dead, a successful simile of that. Cursing only the leaves, crying like an old man in a storm. In this case, metaphor would not accomplish the same effect as a simile, because instead of comparing the pathetic sound that an old man crying a storm to the sense of loss, we would actually picture an old man crying a storm, which is not what would carry the lines that follow. You hear the shout, the crazy hemlocks point, with troubled fingers to the silence which smothers you, a mummy, in time. In fact, if Tate used both the image of the old man and that of the mummy that we just mentioned, he would then have created a mixed metaphor which only would only serve to confuse the reader. On the other hand, there are two ways to read Tate's lines. Reading them one way, you could say that the leaves are crying like an old man in a storm. Read another way, the reader is an old man crying in a storm. Such multiple readings are what draws me to poetry, as well as what I'm doing here. The interpretation that analysis provides. Interpretation is both a leap into the abyss and a swim in a cool lake on a hot day. It's both comforting and risky because it both opens the possibilities of language but also demonstrates our tenuous hold on language as an effective tool for communication. And as it turns out, language is a rather pliable tool for a job that requires so much exertion. As it turns out, as well, Julio Cartazar recognizes his ability when, according to John Felsteiner, he refers to Neruda's residencia in the Piera as a radical mutation of our deepest speech. Felsteiner recalls Cortazar's impression of Neruda's work to demonstrate that even the original is quite transliteral. In other words, Neruda's words do not simply refer to their connotative meanings, but to something beyond language, to something beyond what we can easily communicate to one another, but for which we don't have anything that would work better to express that something. So despite its shortcomings, we still must use this imperfect tool for our most important expressions. Let's look at one last poem by Pablo Neruda, Sonnet 84. In this sonnet, like the previous one, he asks Matilda, his wife, to join him on his journey from day to night. Once again, love, the net of day smothers our work, our wheels, our fires, our death rattles, our goodbyes, 
and we give to the night our errant wheat that the afternoon harvested from the light from the earth. Only the moon folded between its pages now sustains the columns of the stellar estuary. The habitation adopts the patience of gold, and your hands turn the night. O love, O night, O turret drowned by the river of rushing waters and the shadowed sky that enhances and submerges its stormy grapes, until we alone become a darkened space, a chalice into which is poured the ashen stars, a drop from the pulse of the flooding river. I love the last stanza of this poem. The imagery is so rich with color and texture. I can feel the chalice in my hand, that cool chalice of night that holds the ashen stars. And as you can hear, many familiar images and symbols that we've heard in his earlier sonnets reappear in this sonnet, such as net, wheat, river, grapes, and pulse. This reoccurring imagery or symbolism is similar to a vernacular. In other words, if a body of poetry is a language, so to speak, and the symbolism within it is the poet's personal idiom. Such symbols as wheat, river, grapes, all communicate their own personal meaning beyond their denotative meaning, their day-to-day -day meaning, dictionary meaning. They also communicate an association that is particular to each person who comes across them. For example, wheat carries with it many personal associations and attributes for me that it won't for anyone else, and the same case is true for Neruda or for any poet. And it's the repetition of such imagery and symbols that make them stand out as more important than other such words. After all, the repetition of a word or image leads to the memorization of that image, and there, therefore to a more grounded reality, to a type of existence, if you will, of that image as object. I would even go so far as to say that repetition of an object through language, in a way, conjures that object in a mystical or primordial sense. It creates a pattern amidst the chaotic sea of language, and this pattern is one of the most important tools we have to study and analyze poetry. Well, that's all I have for you today. Next time I'm going to share some biographical aspects of Neruda's life and see if we can better understand some of his imagery and its associations through his experiences. Thanks again for subscribing to PoetryCast, and if you're not subscribed, please do so. Subscriptions help to spread the word about this podcast through higher download rates. If you have any questions, or if you'd just like to suggest anything that you'd like me to discuss about poetics, linguistics, or Pablo Neruda, you can email me at poetrycast at yahoo.com. Thanks again for listening. Hasta luego.